I'm San Francisco Chronicle columnist Heather Knight, and you're listening to Fifth in Mission. Life in the Tenderloin continues to get more difficult during the COVID-19 pandemic. Sidewalks crowded with tents make it impossible to keep your social distance. The drug trade continues unabated, and health problems of all kinds are growing more dire. Joining me to talk about what needs to change is Sam Dennison, co-director of Faithful Fools, an unusual social advocacy group headquartered in a bright purple building on Hyde Street. Sam Dennison, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Wish we could do it in person, but we'll have to do that another time. I look forward to the day I can meet you here in the <laughs> Yes. Well, as you know, there have been many news stories lately about the dire situation in the Tenderloin during the COVID-19 pandemic. And I know you live and work right in the middle of the neighborhood. And I wondered if you can describe what you're seeing every day. Yeah. So, well, first, let me tell you, I've been here in the neighborhood myself for a little over nine years. And Faithful Fools, where I live and work, has been here for 22, 23 years. And certainly what we're seeing right now is probably the worst that I've seen it and probably anybody else. I think if you talk to anybody, they will tell you. Um, But I will also tell you that I think it's only because things are visible now, not necessarily because they are actually worse. Um, The pandemic has made visible many of the things that were invisible. So um, here on the 200 block of Hyde, you know, we vary between, I don't know, six and 10 tenths on a regular basis. At any given time um, during the day, we can go from just a few people on the streets hanging out to large crowds of people. There's a kind of daily ebb and flow that has a lot to do with um, the various markets, uh, including the flea markets and drug markets that happen on the street here, as well as, you know, the different needs that people have for getting out of their SROs or out of supportive housing, um, the treks that people make in different directions. Um, But we're seeing the I'm seeing really the consequences of of poverty um, being really magnified here. And, um, you know, when people talk about this looking like other parts of the world where there are deep levels of poverty, there's no doubt that that's true. Um, We are seeing the people who are suffering from um, a lifetime of poverty really struggling with the physical consequences. Um, We see not only the drug overdoses on the streets, but we see people with epilepsy having seizures regularly. Oh, wow. We see the impact of um, diabetes where people are um, unable to, you know, control the food that they're eating. So they go into that kind of diabetic speech slur and mm-hmm. that kind of stuff and are, are begging for some sort of food in order to, to, um, to stabilize themselves. So, you know, the, the health consequences and, and the daily consequences are bad. And, you know, one of the things that's most difficult is that living in poverty um, is a a daily trauma, right? Right. It's it's a daily um, anguish that um, really, again, is more visible now because we're not moving people along so quickly. We're allowing them to become stabilized. So some of the things that we're seeing on the flip side of of, um, the visibility is that we're seeing this, the community, at least in front of uh, our building and around the corner here, um, regain a kind of stability that it hasn't had for six or seven years, um, where people are able to establish their more routine community relationships. So we're seeing more de-escalation, for example. Um, you know, little fights break out all the time, always have done, always will do. 
Um, but when the community is stable, then people kind of break up the fights before they become too serious hmm. and, and things like that. So we're seeing a, a, a resurgence of that community. And then, as always, you know, when people do have medical emergencies, the first responders are really the people that are right next to them. So whether they're overdosing or um, struggling with diabetes or whatever, somebody is right there to um, alert others, to seek help, you know, those kinds of things. Right. And what is it like right now for residents of the neighborhood and workers there? How are you all coping with, you know, much more crowded sidewalks? And of course, you have to try to social distance when you go outside, which is very hard in the tenderloin. So what is that like? Right. So I would say, and this is one of those places where, you know, it it's so difficult because everyone is suffering under the same kind of, of problems. You know, the uh, everyone, no one can social distance here. It, it's like whether you're on the street or whether you're living in an SRO or whether you're working in the neighborhood, there's no social distancing. Um, and I, I think this is one of the places where um, the health department and the city kind of missed a beat seven, eight weeks, nine weeks ago, 12 weeks ago, of thinking about what it means to be in a, a densely populated area and not having a kind of plan for, for the density that's here. So as the, the sidewalks have gotten more um, crowded, the, then the, the conflicts get bigger. Um, and it is true that for everyone who walks on the street, there is concerns about not only social distancing, but just even the, the degree of crowdedness is forcing people to walk in the streets. Right. Um, 10 days ago, we had two, three very serious pedestrian auto accidents right here at the oh, corner. No. Um, and, you know, we don't know the outcome of those, um, but, you know, certainly one, I was sitting here in, in, in Faithful Pools and I heard the impact of the car on the vehicle, on the person's body and they were just around the corner. So um, my understanding is the person flew probably 20 feet um, so it's just a really incredibly bad accident. Wow. Um, so the, the, the crowding has consequences on all different levels for, for everyone um, here. Yeah. P- the pedestrians have always had a hard time in the Tenderloin. There, last year, I believe, uh, a huge percentage of pedestrian deaths occurred in that neighborhood because the streets are so busy and fast moving. Right. Right. And so, you know, even some of the plans for, you know, Vision Zero are slow to be enacted here. We've seen changes in the, um, like the way the lights are timed and, and you know, having more of the, um, you know, the, the, the crosswalk jumbles where, you know, they stop all the traffic and allow pet pedestrians to go. Mm-hmm. But there's, there are no signs indicating how people should manage those. There was never any attempt to educate people about how to really negotiate with the, the new um, implementations. And so, those have not really helped yet. Um, and it, it's, again, an indication of doing some implementation but not working with the, the community, which, which often happens here. There's, there are good efforts on the part of the city. And, and I, I do want to say that I do see um, the city really trying, and, and there are individuals who are working incredibly hard for the neighborhood. Mm-hmm. And we have a, a lot of problems that are pretty intractable. And they started earlier much before the pandemic, and they're here now, and, and that dynamic has not changed. Right. What do you think City Hall should have done differently when the pandemic started a couple of months ago? Um, any concrete actions they should have taken back then in regards to the Tenderloin? You know, I, I, I think yes. That um, So 
living here and amongst people who you know are the poorest of, of San Francisco, I would always formulate policy through their eyes. That would be you know we all we all operate from where we stand, right? Mm-hmm. So. Um, if I were implementing policy from where I stand, the first thing that I would have done is to think about all the people who are sleeping on the streets, right? That we, um, we know that when the pandemic started, there were something like 700 tents throughout the city, and now there are a couple of thousand. But we also know that there are seven or 8,000, maybe 9,000 people who are on the streets. So that means that the majority of people who are on the streets are sleeping in, on, on, the, on, the, on the concrete, mm-hmm. right? So what I would have done is to look at a kind of tenting policy for not only the tenderloin, but for the city and to say, we need, we need tents. The city is going to hand out tents. We do some encampments, but encampments can only go so far. I mean, each of the encampments we have have 50 people in them, right? And when you're talking 8,000 people, 50 people per encampment is, is not going to be adequate. Right. So we needed a policy that would say, and, uh, tents are allowed on on the sidewalks, but no more than five on a block. They can't be more than two or three feet from a given door. Um, and we will have services that will patrol wherever there are more than three tents on a block that will provide trash pickup daily, that will do um, three times a week uh, washing, that you know anywhere where there are more than X number of people, say 50, which is the international standard, will have porta-potties and hand-washing stands. And I think within the the emergency system of the city, which you know, I know people who are in emergency planning, and we have some amazingly good plans in place for earthquakes and tsunamis and things like that. And what we just haven't done is turned our minds to what does it mean to respond to the disaster, the economic disaster that we have been facing mm-hmm. for the last number of, of decades. Right. And you know, and and I know people will say things like. Well, if we provide that service on the streets, that means we've given up on on housing people. I think we've given up on housing people for now anyway. <laughs> right. I, I, I don't movement on that. And I think it's a bad thing to say, well, because we're not going to address housing, you still have to sleep on cardboard. Yeah. You know, it's like, I think we have to start with the reality, which is the housing is not there. And we, as a community, as San Francisco, we haven't come to to say things like, if we're going to resolve the homelessness of people within our community, it means that other people have to change how they're living. That in some communities, we're going to have to have duplexes and quadplexes and other larger buildings for housing. We can't put the housing density only in Soma and Tenderloin and and the downtown area. And, And those are hard things to come to grips with. And if we recognize we're not ready to come to grips with those things, then we can't punish people for living on the streets and say, you don't get tents. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's like, that's just not fair. Um, I want us to deal with the housing problem and I want us to, to disperse where services are so that people aren't congested here in the, the Tenderloin and Soma. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think those are some of the things. So to go back to the question of what would I have done differently, I would have engaged a, what does it mean to make people safe and, and comfortable on the streets at the beginning of the pandemic, provided those services so that we would offer a model for everybody of what um, social distancing looks like and what um, public uh, health really looks like 
especially for the most visible people who are those people living on the streets. Mm -hmm. What do you think of the safe um, sleeping sites? The first one has started up near the Asian Art Museum and there's another plan for the hate. Um, Do you think that's a good answer or should we be focused more on the hotel rooms or what's your perspective on that? I think it's both. You know, we're we're never going to have enough hotel rooms and um, we're never going to have enough encampment spaces and, and so on. So we need all of these solutions. Um, I think the one thing that's happened with the hotel rooms that's very frustrating to me is the um, one size fits all approach to it, which is, you know, we need, uh, you know, to move people into the housing. And so there need to be some sort of supervision and supportive uh, uh, services that are there, which is absolutely true. But we also know a number of people who regularly will use their SSI um, or other um, resources to um, rent a hotel room for a week or two weeks on any given month. Mm -hmm. And, you know, hotel vouchers would have been very helpful. It will be, would be very helpful even now for those people because they already have relationships with hotels. Mm -hmm. They don't need to have a whole block that's, that's contracted. They don't need all the extra services. They literally just need the dollars to be able to stay inside. That's a good idea. Um, Yeah. We have one fellow who um, has uh, a form of of schizophrenia, uh, atrial fibrillation. Um, He's 62 years old, was not um, eligible to move into the hotel. So he contacted us saying, my SSI check is is used up. I now need help with the next couple of weeks. And we've been able to do that. But there's no, now that he's inside, he can't get on the list for city hotels because he's not homeless any longer. Hmm. So, you know, it's one of those things where the bureaucracy, the bureaucratic thinking narrows so that people think, well, the only way that people are going to move inside is with supportive services. And that's, you know, that's not true for people day in and day out. And it's not true for people right now. The, you know, people who lose their housing often don't need supportive services, especially families that may have, have hit the streets because of a, a lost job or a medical emergency. And, you know, so we, we do need supportive services for those who have been long time on the on the on the streets Mm -hmm. but we also need a more direct access through a voucher system and subsidies that would just move people directly into hotels as needed i'll be right back with sam dennison i'm heather knight and i'm talking with sam dennison co-director of faithful fools you first contacted me and we set up this podcast because of a column I did um, on the death of Ian Carrier, a resident of the Tenderloin who was addicted to drugs and died on the sidewalk several weeks ago after being released from the hospital. And you had some ideas about um, how the city can address its drug crisis, which is you know, really out of control right now. It doesn't seem like <laughs> there's much of a plan at all. Can you speak to what you think would work in that regard? Yeah, so... Um a year ago when, when Matt Haney sponsored the hearing on, on drug dealing um, and then with the, the drug dealing task force, I think, so there are two things that I think happen. One is that our, our rage about open air drug dealing is our rage about poverty and it is our rage about the visibility of that poverty. Um, you know, we, we could push the, there's lots of drug dealing that goes on that's not on the streets of, of, of the Tenderloin. Yeah. Um, and there are, there's a lot more drug usage that goes on that's not on the streets of the Tenderloin. So, you know, those things are um, complexly interrelated to each other. Mm-hmm. The second piece is that in that context of open-air drug dealing is where we really duke out our 
social values? You know, should it all be um, abstinence only and not allowed? Or do we go totally down a harm reduction where it's allowed and everybody has autonomy? And part of the problem with the ways in which we engage with this debate is that, you know, we do it in public and in such a way that people have to put their stake in the ground and reiterate what they say over and over mm. and over. And so, <laughs> Welcome to San Francisco. Yeah, exactly. So we, we will hear over and over again, you know, um, drug dealing won't be tolerated in, in, at Knob Hill. Well, it's not tolerated here either. It's just we don't know how to move it out right? It's not like we, we're saying, oh, well, you're welcome to come here and do drug dealing. You know, and, and I watched the police do, you know, put in just an incredible amount of energy and work and, you know, they arrest and arrest and arrest. And part of the problem is that there is an unending supply of, of dealers from other parts of the world that will just always come in here. It really doesn't matter. Um, and I can't imagine how frustrating that is for them. It also only attacks one piece of the problem. And I, I hear Captain Proby talk with great compassion about, you know, wanting to stop the overdoses. But the reality is that no matter how much we arrest, the drugs aren't going away and the overdoses aren't going to stop. In fact, overdoses aren't really caused by having access to drugs. It's caused a lot by um, impurity of drugs. It's caused by, you know, the desire to try and get that ultimate high which is pushed by the trauma that people are living on a regular basis. So to ask the police to fix this with just one tool is not adequate. But then when we turn around and say, but it's not, it shouldn't be tolerated here, then we're kind of poking them in the eye and saying, see, you're not doing a good enough job. Yeah. And that's untenable. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, you know, we, we look at people who are doing harm reduction work and we're saying, oh, you're just enabling and, you know, all of those kinds of things. There, which is not true either, you know, that harm reduction is a road to recovery. It's just a different road to recovery. Mm -hmm. and, and the problem is that we have so many people who are just intractably, you know, staked out their territory. Um, and somehow what we need is much more of a, a, a health policy approach to it, combined with a drug, enfor uh, drug enforcement, police enforcement um, strategy, um, we need to bring people back in from being outlaws. I mean, right now with drug enforcement being so highly um, favored means that there are people on the streets who um, have no access to law enforcement when they are abused or when they mm -hmm. are threatened with violence because that is, is so entwined with what's going on with the, 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 the drugs. And even if the police would be, and, and they often are very helpful when people are in trouble, that's not the feeling that people have generally about the police when they are in trouble. So, you know, we've got this kind of outlaw community and, you know, the, we, we need to shift that dynamic in some fashion. Well, that's not going to happen in a task force and that's not going to happen in city hall. It needs to happen here. And it, you know, some of the things we want to be able to do are to use the, the parking lot at 180 Jones, for example, for a harm reduction center to be able to mm -hmm. really work on those issues. Um, the parking lot here at Turk and Hyde could also be that where, you know, we could bring in urban alchemy and the harm reduction therapy folks and a variety of other services to start really reintegrating community together. I mean, part of what happens is that when enforcement is the only answer is the consequences are going to jail and consequences like that are not the same as being accountable to the community. And many people on the streets are not accountable. They're not accountable to 
their neighbors when they are, you know, encroaching their tents on doors and that kind of stuff. They're just trying to, to survive and trying to stake out some territory. But if we had human accountability where people are really living with um, the relationships and the harm to relationship that happens, sort of a restorative justice approach, we would find that we could integrate people back into creating order on the streets. And it's mm-hmm. that order that we want. We don't want um, the disorder and the chaos on the streets. But again, we, we target drug dealing as being the cause of that disorder, but that disorder has, is much more complicated. And the road yeah. out of it is much more complicated. And tell me about Faithful Fools, how it started and what it does and why it has that kind of memorable name. <laughs> well, Faithful Fools was started in 22, 23 years ago by a Franciscan and a Unitarian Universalist, um, Carmen Barsotti and Kay Jorgensen. Kay passed away a few years ago from advanced Parkinson's, but Carmen is here with me as um, co-director and uh, we both live here. And um, the purpose and uh, focus of our work here is really to bring attention to the um, deteriorating conditions of uh, society, not just on the streets, but of but everywhere, the, the increasing levels of poverty, and to create avenues for people, both um, individually and collectively, to respond to that deterioration. And we believe that by living here where things are most visible, we can be the most effective at, at that. Um, and we live in community with people who are living on the streets. They're our neighbors. We live in community with, with other folks. The idea of faithful fools really came about because the idea of being faithful is to be steady, to be steady in relationship and be steady in one's values. Um, so often we, we give up after either a short period of time or a long period of time. And often with the people that we are in relationship with, if they may um, be suffering from uh, some sort of schizophrenia or other mental health issues, or they may be living in and out of substance use, you know, we don't offer a judgment and say, you have to change your behavior, otherwise we won't be in relationship with you. And for some people, um, that's really all that they have. You know, we, we've been with people for 20 years who may be born addicted, maybe suffering with, with schizophrenia, and they aren't going to get better, but just because they're not going to get better doesn't mean they shouldn't have stable relationships. And those stable relationships provide what they need in order to function to the best of their ability. Then the idea of fool comes back to the the medieval society, the idea that there is this character, the jester or the fool, who sits by the, the foot of the king and keeps things entertained, but is always listening and occasionally the, the, um, the jokes and the, the humor is aimed at the king to sort of point out where the fallacies are, what's, what's ridiculous and what's going on, the, the ego or the, um, the limited thinking and, and those kinds of things. And sometimes the king gets very upset with the fool and, and gives a good swift kick and kicks the fool right back out into the streets. <laughs> and, and there the, the fool provo- provides the same function of paying attention, learning, observing, teasing people, um, pointing out where the, where the problems are, where the fallacies are in thinking. And pretty soon, you know, the mob will get frustrated and angry at being mocked that way and kick the fool right back into the king's court. And so the fool is someone who goes back and forth between different places. And, and that's what we talk about. We're, we're the space in between. We can, in any given day, have developers and people from City Hall come through at the same time that somebody 
who um, is, is living on the streets comes through and we, we are engaged with them at the same, same level with the same degree of, of humanity. And at other times, you know, we, we wander, we, we wander to the different places. We'll meet people wherever they are. Um, we say we, we seek to meet people where they are uh, aware of our judgments. We know we carry judgments with us um, and we, we are there to meet people and call forth their humanity. So our, our tagline is we discover on the streets our common humanity because every day people need to be on the streets in one way or another, um, you know, mm-hmm. even if they're just looking out the window in these, these pandemic days. Yeah, that's great. Well, you've survived the serious questions and now it's time for the lightning round. Oh, sure. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Where is your favorite place in San Francisco to get a burrito? Ah, well, I tell you, Taqueria de la Paz is really my favorite. It's a Turk in, in Leavenworth. Um, although burritos are good, but I will tell you, their street tacos, they are incredible. Just <laughs> Ooh, I'll have to try that. What is your favorite movie filmed in San Francisco? Um, Last Black Man Standing in San Francisco. It, it's really wonderful. There's a scene in it where they are going down Eddy Street right by the Healing Well, and the Healing Well was... Um, one of our partners and born here in our building. And it's great to see them as they're rolling down the street. And <laughs> I love the story of it too. The humanity yeah. is so beautiful. It is. Um, thinking back to when bars were open uh, decades ago, where is your favorite place in the city to get a stiff drink? Well, I'm not as much a stiff drink person as I used to be. Um, I used to really enjoy, you know, Manhattans and, and that kind of stuff. But I've, I've moved on to beer these days. So <laughs> I'm going to point us to the beer basement, which is a 222 hide right next door to Faithful Fools. Oh, cool. And they are, they're just a, a wonderful crew, have great beer, fabulous comedy nights. Um, and, you know, unlike other uh, bars that have often opened in the neighborhood that tend to be sort of edgy destination bars and attract people who um, aren't, aren't necessarily here for the neighborhood, the beer basement is just creates a wonderful sense of, of community amongst people. So mm-hmm. I'll, I'll drop by there for a beer on a regular basis. Nice. Um, if you could wave a magic wand, what would be your one wish for the Tenderloin? My one wish for the Tenderloin would be that it would be integrated with the rest of San Francisco, that we mm-hmm. would not look at the Tenderloin as being some sort of se- separate place, that yeah. um, people could move in and out of the Tenderloin easily and freely that you know whether it's the children and the seniors or the people living on the streets there wouldn't be this sense of being restricted you know mm-hmm. um, and then the other thing that I would really wish is that um, there would be a, a great big neon sign over the the tenderloin that proclaimed what an amazing arts <laughs> we are you know it would be like best best museum nightclub poetry center of all the world right here in the tenderloin <laughs> awesome Last question. What is something you always make sure to squeeze into your busy day? Ah, well, I tell you, I'm a, I'm a little bit of a, a foodie. Um, mm-hmm. And my foodiness has now moved to really being focused on our farmer's market, where this time of year, we have such good berries. So every day I have my allotment of strawberries, raspberries, blackberries, blueberries, any kind of berry you can imagine. And um, I, I sit and I savor them one by one. <laughs> I do that too. We have that in common. 
Well, thank you so much for joining me. It was fun to talk to you. It was great talking to you. <laughs> Hope to see you around the neighborhood soon. With yes, lifts. definitely. Thank you to Sam Dennison for joining me today, to Karen Creighton for producing this episode, and to you for listening. Fifth Emission is a production of the San Francisco Chronicle. If you like this podcast, please consider becoming a financial supporter of the largest newsroom in Northern California. You can sign up for a San Francisco Chronicle membership at sfchronicle.com slash pod.